podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Across the Pond Sports Podcast, part of Across the Pond Sports Network. Don't forget to drop us a rating and review after the episode. Check us out on social media and on our website at atbsports.net. Okay, so we have a special show for you today. I am joined by Jesse Bradley. Jesse Bradley is, well, sportsman, first of all, then pastor. So that, that takes a bit of a turn in itself. Jesse, you played in Scotland, which obviously was where I am. You also played in the US and in Zimbabwe. Where did it all start from you when it came to soccer? You know, when I was three years old, I lived in Minnesota, which is the northern part, very cold part of the United States of America. And we lived next to the University of Minnesota campus where there were sports. The Golden Gophers were the mascot. Very unusual name, but great teams. And when I was going to the games, basketball, hockey, just the different sports, football, I told my parents, this is what I want to do when I grow up. I want to play sports, stadiums. I, I just love it. And so the passion was in my heart. It really as soon as I could even speak. I mean, that's that's how it gripped me. And then in terms of soccer, you know, we're a few steps behind in America compared to UK, Scotland, and you'd probably say that might even be generous in rounding up. But I'll say that uh, when I was growing up, we had the NASL and I got pictures in my mind, Ace Nesselenka, it was Minnesota kicks. And I got to see some different players, even Pele. And, you know, there were different players from other countries. And I got that picture in my mind. I was able to go to some of the games. And I started playing as a young kid. Now, it wasn't my top sport. In America, one challenge for kids is to choose a sport because there's so many great options. Whereas in a lot of countries, it's going to be soccer as the number one sport. So I played baseball. You know, I played basketball. I played soccer. I played football for a little while. I played a little tennis. I mean, I was just trying everything. And when I was starting to get more serious, I focused on basketball and the soccer coach at that time, because I wasn't playing, said he really needed a goalkeeper. So I was age 12 and he saw how I played basketball, the hand-eye coordination. And America's produced a lot of outstanding goalkeepers because so many of our sports are hand-eye. And so he started to train me and I loved it. And those were my two sports in high school. And in soccer, we won two state championships. The sports here in America, you know, the college sports are very strong, whereas in Scotland and UK, college sports, you wouldn't really go watch a game. But in no, America, yeah. they really do. And it's academics first. And here it's both and. But in high school, I played and we won the state championship. So if you can picture a Metrodome indoor stadium, about 6000 fans, and we won the state championship in a shootout. And that's when I realized I've got more potential in soccer than I do in basketball. And sometimes in sport, you might have one sport or even one position that you love, but it's not the sport of the position where you're going to go the furthest. And I realized I was really made to be a goalkeeper. And so I continued in college. I played for Bobby Clark. He was our coach. He's a legend in Scotland, played for the national team, Aberdeen. He also you know, coached the New Zealand national team, coached in Africa. He's been a college coach, just retired in America, won a national championship at Notre Dame. And he taught me goalkeeping. I mean, just the art 
of goalkeeping, the mindset, the skills, the craft. And I was so grateful to play for him. We won two Ivy League championships and we made it to the final eight in America. That's the NCAA, the final eight, the elite eight. And we lost to Alexi Lawless, who's a well-known He's on ESPN, you know, and, and we lost to him. I, I was on his podcast and, and radio show, and, and I got him to admit, I think, many years later, they were fortunate to win the game. You know how it is in soccer. You win a few games you don't deserve, and I, I sort of got him to admit that. But we lost, and uh, that was the, our best run in college. And I just knew after college I wanted to keep playing, and I was hopeful that I would have a long career because goalkeepers, you can play to your 40 sometimes. And uh, that's, that's the track I was on and just eager to play, keep playing, love the sport. Yeah. I mean, that is definitely one thing that you notice about the goalkeeping position. You mentioned America produces some great goalkeepers and they have Brad Friedel, Tim Howard, mm-hmm. just to, just to name two. Uh, Tim Howard obviously played at Manchester United, mm-hmm. very successful career there. And he, he was playing until he was in his 40s as well. And Brad Friedel, I think, was probably about 50 by the time he hung up his gloves. He finished at Tottenham, I think, uh, off the top of my head. But uh, yeah, I mean, Brad Friedel, I remember watching him. I remember watching Tim Howard for the US. He was, he was amazing. They had some great teams back then. They had Donovan... Landon Donovan, sorry, and yeah. Michael Bradley and all these guys as well. So in terms of after college then, you then had mm-hmm. to make a decision. Were you going to go get a, a real job? Right. <laughs> or or right. were you going to go play soccer somewhere? Uh, how, how did you come to that decision? Yeah, you know, growing up, I played in such great teams. And the culture, when you get a great coach, the culture is outstanding. You know, my coach growing up was Buzz Lagos. And Manny Lagos was his son, who now runs Minnesota United, you know, one of the MLS teams. And Amos McGee is kind of one of his right-hand men who was also on our team. And again, it was that culture. When I then played uh, in college, it felt like a professional team. I mean, just the respect, the work ethic, the camaraderie, we still keep in touch. I mean, so many years later, we're still close friends, Zoom, you know, emails, joking around. The, the, the stories just get bigger, you know, maybe not as accurate, but the stories are getting bigger every year. And uh, it's that bond, it's the relationships, even more than the results, I would say. The championships are nice. I've got the rings, you know, in, in my house, but it's the relationships. And When I was going to jump to that next level, there were different options. So I played for a Minnesota team, but it was still at that point pre-MLS, just before MLS. And so that was a good experience, but I realized I need to go overseas. And through Bobby, there was a lot of options. You know, our team had also gone to Scotland and toured and played the different clubs, you know, Dundee United and Aberdeen and we actually did really well as a college team. We, you know, we tied uh, the young guys at Aberdeen and the team they put together and they had a lot of starters, you know, back then it was Ian Jess and Scotty Booth and, you know, those guys, but uh, it was very competitive. So that was about the level we were playing at. And, and then, you know, I went back and trained at Aberdeen and also, um, you know, at that time in college too, I played for a season in the Highland league to get some experience, but I loved, love Scotland. And then, Really, the choice was between England and Africa. And with England, you know, Bobby's close with Alex Ferguson. It was Queens Park Rangers. And then also in Africa, there was Zimbabwe. And I chose Africa. And the thinking at that time was really that I wanted to see what it's like. 
I wanted to see the poverty. I wanted to see, wanted to meet the people. I wanted to experience a different part of the world. That's the beauty of soccer is that such an international sport. Now, when I play, I just love it because all the nations come together and the friendships that happen in soccer, you get to know someone's personality pretty quickly. You know, you can see it. You know, even if you don't speak their language, you pick up, are they selfish player? Are they unselfish? Do they like the extra touches? Do they pass? You know, how do they respond when they mess up? Do they come back on defense. I mean, you can just see so much and uh, the bond that happens through the sport. I mean, that's the beauty of soccer. It's a beautiful game, not just to watch, but it's the relationships and the unity, I think, across the world that can come through the sport. So playing in Bulawayo, you know, it was a time there where there was drought, there were AIDS, was um, just heartbreaking. There were guys in the national team, guys we played with that were dead a year later. And, you know, in the early 20s, just tragedies. And actually, one of the guys I was playing with ended up through grassroots soccer, combining soccer and AIDS prevention. And that's been incredible. Tommy Clark, and uh, he's done a tremendous job of just trying to save lives there. And so going to Africa, playing there, different styles, you know, in in different locker rooms and different cultures. I would say at Aberdeen, you're not going to get any hugs. You're not going to get a lot of encouragement. And back then, anyway. Yeah, back then, exactly. And it was, um, you're going to, you're going to, for me, it was a time, especially Aberdeen winter, you know, when you're outside, you're playing, you're training eight to five, and it's the wind and the cold and, you know, the rain constantly. And then you get the comments coming. I mean, you're either that's going to thin the herd. I mean, a lot of people are gonna be like, I'm done. I'm out. This isn't for me. But if you love the game, then you're going to learn from that. It's going to you're going to need that toughness and that mental toughness. So it's a sharpening. And, and there's a warmth. I mean, I just love the people in Scotland. There's just such a warmth there, but it's not fluff. <laughs> no one's going to, you know, say something just to make you feel good. And then also it's really authentic. And so, you know, when you have someone's respect, it's real and, and the communication's real. And what I'd say about Zimbabwe is the minute you get there, you just know they're thrilled that you're there. I mean, the love, the warmth, the smile, uh, I hear still hear the voices of the kids in the classroom singing, even though they don't have money, even though there's not many jobs, you know, they're just singing. If you go to someone's home, they're going to give you their meat, even though that's all they have, or that's the best food they have. They're just going to bring that out for you. And there's that hospitality is not what's in your wallet or your home or how big your home is. Hospitality is in your heart. And in Africa, I learned generosity. I learned rising above the circumstances and finding joy in life. And even though there's so many challenges and I love that in in Africa, you know, there's a lot of, I would say in terms of the game, there's a lot of skills. There's a lot of um, clever play. It's entertaining, athletic, quick, but uh, sometimes, I don't know, in Scotland, it felt like there was a little more sense of system. And uh, sometimes the defense was, was stronger, a little more well-organized. So I don't know. Those are some initial thoughts, but uh, I loved it all. Really did. So going from what we'd call the North Sea weather in Scotland, where, yeah, it gets bitterly cold. I'm going to be honest, I played basketball so I could stay indoors (laughs) rather than go out, jump. Because when I did play, and and it's it's funny how you say that you played basketball initially and Mm -hmm. then went to play soccer. Because when I played obviously as part of your high school curriculum you played soccer but whenever we had soccer I would be in goals no James mm. you're going to goals you play basketball you can go in goals yes and and you know what I was actually pretty decent I won a tournament or two 
and yeah I, I quite enjoyed it but you did have that kind of that kind of stigma you play basketball you're good with your hands yes and like that was that was literally the the thinking and putting me in goals that and I had two left feet <laughs> so some people can't dance I can't play football to save my life. So I, I, I gave that up quite quickly and, and stuck. I, I was the opposite. I stuck with basketball mm-hmm. for, for that very reason. But you went from, like I say, that North Sea freezing rain weather, especially in the winter, um, mm-hmm. to a very different climate in, in Zimbabwe. I mean, that mm-hmm. that in itself must mm-hmm. have been a bit of a culture shock as well especially coming from america to scotland mm-hmm. which yeah pretty pretty similar but then mm-hmm. dropping down into africa into zimbabwe mm-hmm. that that must have been a bit of a shock to the system as well because you, you talked about seeing the poverty and, and kind of seeing real life right you probably don't get any more real than that especially at that time when hiv and aids was kind of rife around africa and there was a lot of need for things to happen and things to change. That's a great insight. Yeah. You know, in, in America, I'd say the goalkeeper was either good with his hands or it was the one player that didn't like to run or couldn't run very fast or like you said, two left feet. And so it wasn't always a compliment to be a goalkeeper because, you know, yeah, you just throw the person in nets who isn't going to be as quick as everyone else. But uh, but yeah, in, in terms of Africa and, and the culture there, uh, so different. And one thing that I had never experienced before, just in terms of skin color alone, was being the minority. And that's a powerful experience. Uh, when when you're in the majority culture and you've never been a minority, sometimes you don't realize or understand. And I don't still fully understand, but I I grew, I think, in terms of some empathy and some compassion because now people were very kind to me, but I stood out. Sometimes I would you know, for a day, wouldn't see anyone else who's white. And when we would go in to play and go to um, the stadium or the fields there, you know, the kids would follow us and wide eyed and they would say Makiwa, which means white man. And it's not derogatory. It's just like, here comes a white man. We never see a white man. And they would follow me and uh, just laughing and curious. And, you know, I would sit down, I I had hair back then, and they would come up and touch my hair and touch my skin and just kind of want to know what does that even feel like and just smiling and laughing. And it it was it was great. I loved it. And and so, yeah, I would say that uh, overall, it was such a change in terms of weather, in terms of culture, and each place had their strengths. For me, I'm someone who, who really loves people. And, and I like the diversity. So it, it didn't, you know, it, it wasn't difficult in, in that sense. And I would have stayed a lot longer. I ended up getting sick in Africa. I took a prescribed medication to prevent malaria. And that's what ended up, you know, it really, my career tragically ended because eventually it built up toxic levels in my system. And I had so many symptoms, both physical and even emotional. It was like a massive drug overdose. And the the physical symptoms included, you know, sweats, chills, migraine headaches. I never have headaches. And this was so intense. Any light or sound was was too much. And then 
Uh, also, uh, my heart. My heart started to beat like 160 beats a minute sitting still. It's called tachycardia, racing heartbeat. The drug inhibits the inhibitors, so you can't regulate your heartbeat. Also, atrial flutter, another abnormality, and it would start to skip beats and heart murmur. And the left side of my chest was just in pain during the morning, during the night. I, they, the doctor sent me back to America because they saw my health was declining and they didn't know what it was. And I paid out of pocket, went to Stanford, a well-known hospital, and the physician said it's one of 10 things. And one of them was a possible side effects of the drug. And so I ended up, I was fighting for my life for a year. And I'll tell you, the drug was so intense that I was pretty even keeled. But with the drug, there were panic attacks, anxiety, depression, even suicidal thoughts flooding in. And it was like, where's this coming from? What is going on? Crazy dreams. It was wild. Like I would be in my room. If the lights were on, my mind was clear. But if the lights went off and the room was dark, I would just start seeing all these different things and different images and turn the lights back on. Okay, I'm doing okay again. I mean, that's just a picture. It, it took me a year to be able to drive again because I couldn't handle the stimulation. So double vision, there was a lot of symptoms. And I don't know if people listening today have ever had something that is more than just a little trial, but something traumatic that you didn't see coming in life. And all of a sudden your life's changed and it was going one way and it's not going that way anymore. And now you got to figure out how to get through it and how do you cope? And for me, in terms of coping, my go-to was always try harder, do better. You know, if life's hard, my parents got divorced when I was seven and, uh, you know, trying to figure out and navigate life at that point, it's just like, well, I'll do academics well, and I'll enjoy sports and apply myself to both and enjoy my friends. And let's just keep doing the best we can in the realms where I had some, some control because my parents, I had no control. And that really served me pretty well through life until this. And now it's like, well, how am I going to make it through this? Because the doctors are saying there's nothing they can do and they don't know if I'm going to live and I'm fighting for my life for a year and there's nothing I can really do. I mean, I can do small things, but there was nothing I could do to just change it. And in America, a lot of times we either think technology or a pill, you know, it's kind of the microwave solution. What do we got that's just going to make it all better? And there was absolutely nothing. And uh, it took about 10 years to recover. So, so how, how long how long did you take that drug? How, how long did it take for that to kind of to take a hold? Yeah, took it for a season. Took it for a season. So, for so after season. Ma- many months. Yeah. So I think the thing for me with that is you, you take it for the season and obviously you think you're protected. You, you yeah. think I'm in a good place because I'm not going to get malaria. And that's obviously a good thing. You don't want that. But on the flip side of that, you then build up this toxicity to this drug. And you go to the doctors and they say, it's just when you said it, oh, I could be one of 10 things. I'm like, mm-hmm. doc, mate, <laughs> like you get paid, what, how much? Can you not yeah, like that? <laughs> Great point. Narrow it down to like one or two. Right. So thank you. And then, so what, that year, I mean, you said you, I mean, you couldn't drive the sensitivity and, and stuff and stimulation. That must, that must take, I mean, for anyone to be able, I mean, yeah. I've only been driving for three or four years because I got a bit lazy and didn't bother getting my license. But now that I'm driving, <laughs> to not, to, something something as simple as driving, just going out, jumping in the car, going, picking up a pint of milk or something. Mm-hmm. To not be able to do that all of a sudden, that would be quite trying. And there must have been lots of mm-hmm. other things that you couldn't do in that year that you would used to be doing. So how did how did you fill your time and what did you kind of yeah. what did you kind of do to kind of not overstimulate but still kind of keep your brain ticking over? 
That's a great point. A great question too, because yeah, you don't want to be too passive where it's like, you're not taking any steps forward, but then there's real limitations and trying to get used to a body and a mind and just wondering and knowing if I'm ever going to have a healthy body or be in my right mind. I mean, it's going to be the grace of God because the healing process, it was a real unknown. And, you know, one fortunate thing is that the physicians wanted me to take the medication for a month after I returned to the States because they didn't want me to get malaria on top of whatever else I was suffering from. And I told them no. And this was before we knew it was the drug. And I just knew deep inside that it's the medication and I'm not going to take it. Now, uh, they pushed back pretty hard, but I, I just knew it. And I held my ground and it was like I prayed and it was like, I know I'm, this is the decision. This is the right answer. Now, we sent my blood to Center of Disease Control. They measured it. They verified the toxicity. And then the physician said, wow, that was really great. You didn't take it this last month because, yeah, you're right. I probably would have died. So, you know, at least they owned it on some level. But uh, there, I, I just forgive and, and we move forward in life. But, you know, going back to your question, there were so many things that I had to learn how to do. One of them was walk. And I started a chart because when you're sick for months, you don't feel like you're progressing at all. And I had to see, okay, I could walk 10 months or 10 minutes a few months ago. You know, now I can walk 20 minutes a day. And I had a heart monitor and I could see that, okay, my heart isn't overstressed and I can walk 20 minutes. And so I had to celebrate that. I had to every day find 10 things I'm thankful for. That's something I started to do because it was easy for me to focus on what I didn't have and what I lost, but that isn't going to help my return if I get locked into what I don't have anymore. I had to learn how to grieve and that's something I still is not natural. I don't like to do it, but I had to... um, And this was, there were so many new things for me. One of them was prayer. My identity was in soccer. My identity was in success. My identity was in my career. My identity was in health. And then what do you do when all those things are gone? And I was wrestling with the question, well, who am I then? And what the shift for me was that instead of as good as those things were and enjoyable as those were, I couldn't put my identity there. My deepest identity had to be in something that won't leave or can't be lost. And that's where I I found it personally for me. And you probably have listeners right now that are all different backgrounds. But for me, it was like God's going to be here in his love. And so that's where I found a security point right there. But even in praying for me, which was new, you know, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up with the Bible or Jesus or nothing. And, and, that didn't happen until, you know, just before this, but I had to learn how to pray and kind of give some burdens to God. I had to learn how to let people in to my pain. I had to learn how to, instead of being in denial, admit that I'm struggling and then let people help me and receive help and let people in and share some of the, the struggles and the disappointment, the pain I have and the questions I have. And that was all new to me. I was more in self-sufficient mode. I was more in achievement mode. And that was such a, an adjustment for me. And uh, so there were things happening and I had no idea you know, how long it would take to recover. I had no idea what I would do in life, but uh, I just knew that soccer was probably unlikely and when, when you lose your career and your childhood dream, that's painful. That's painful. But what I've discovered is that I think some of the most challenging times in life can actually be transformative, the healing, the growth, and even inspire other people. And sometimes when life isn't going that way anymore, there's a rebuilding process. And for me, it started with a foundation and then it touched all the relationships. And I found that this is going to sound crazy, but If you ask me, would it be better if I just would have played soccer until I was age 40 and had a great career? I don't know if I would take that because now I would take it in the sense that it would be easier and more enjoyable. 
But in terms of some of the things that have happened in my life, I don't think I would have changed or grown without some of these trials. And so I just look back and um, I have so many great memories in, in soccer and goalkeeping. I try to delete the goals that were that I let in that were embarrassing. I try not to remember those. They're going to come up with some kind of technique eventually where you can like delete those kind of memories, but they still, I have dreams where I'm in the nets and I replay those in my mind. Sometimes it's like, Oh no, don't go there. Don't go there. But I'm so grateful for sports. And at the same time, what happened after that was tragic, but it's a big part of who I am today. It's part of my story. And I still love playing my kids play And uh, I'm very involved in different levels with sports for sure. But that's how, for me, my playing career ended in terms of professional soccer. And that's got to be quite tough in terms, because you've been so competitive for so long. I mean, you've seen it even back in those days, you had Michael Jordan playing for the Bulls and then his father sadly passed away and he was like, I'm going to go play baseball. Now, turns out Michael Jordan wasn't as good at baseball as he was at basketball and he, he knew that he wasn't competitive so he went back and played basketball because he couldn't turn off that kind of competitive edge that he had and even when he retired yes. a second time he then came back again because again he just had that competitive edge that he just couldn't mm. he, he just couldn't get rid of it that that's was, right that, to be sick. I mean, you obviously he was just retiring yeah. just to kind of put his feet up and play golf. But for you, you were effectively medically retired mm-hmm. and you didn't have a choice. And I think mm-hmm. from, from my standpoint, that would be difficult to not have mm-hmm. a choice because I think That's right. when I stopped playing basketball, I stopped because I chose to. Mm-hmm. Whereas for mm-hmm. you, as someone who's competitive and, and played at a good level, elite eights and everything else, that's something that, you know, you're like, yes, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's, what's, what's my goals next? And for that, mm-hmm. suddenly, just like a light switch turned off. Right. Yes. That, that must, mentally, that must have had an impact. Never mind the drugs and what that was doing to you, but mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. must have had quite a big impact on you as well. Absolutely. When you go it on your own terms, it's much more pleasant. When you're forced out, that's a whole different experience. And with sport, your body's your livelihood. So when your body's no longer capable, and for some, you know, it's an injury, uh, for some, it's a sickness, for some, it's talent. But when your body won't perform at a certain level, then your career's over. And you know, it's so important to have another career. One thing I appreciate about the American system is that you can go to college, get an education. And then when your playing career is over, you have a sense of career, you've got some open doors. When I was playing in Scotland, I looked at a lot of the young guys, and some of them weren't as dedicated in terms of their studies. And it was like, okay, when this career ends, because soccer is not going to last that long, you know, even if you play to your 35, you got a lot of living to do after that. You got a lot of income, you know, you got some bills to pay. And a lot of these guys, it just wasn't set up or it wasn't on the radar. They just didn't have the education. So I'm I'm grateful, you know, in, in Europe as education improves for soccer players and then they start to think ahead of time. All right, what am I going to do afterwards? And that's so important. But uh, yeah, for me to have that snatched away, like you were saying earlier, it's ironic, but the drug that was supposed to protect me actually was killing me. And for a lot of people in life, they've had that experience. Sometimes, sadly, it's been, let's say, an abusive parent 
a parent is supposed to protect their kids, but maybe verbally or even physically, sometimes sexually, the parent abuses, or maybe it's a boss that does a lot of damage and leaves deep scars. And sometimes it's even in the church, there's corruption, there's hypocrisy, even like a a priest or a pastor can do terrible things. And that catches you off guard. You know, for me, the doctors didn't warn me of the side effects and I just never expected it. So there's a lot of trust. And then that happens. And yeah, when that career has gone, there's a lot of, there's a lot of grieving and mourning uh, as well, especially when you feel like it ends prematurely and you were saying, you know, the competitiveness, I have it. It's, it doesn't go away when you stop playing and you, you just can't find anything quite like it. You know, some people go into coaching, some people, you know, it's announcing, some people find a different career. I mean, there's some parallels to what I do now. And I feel like here's another point I would say for, for parents that are competitive, don't, impose that on your kids. You know, I have four kids that play sports. I would say only one of them has a drive like I had. And so I can't make the other three play more, play harder, try to, you know, come on, get your game face on. They play, they enjoy it, but their style's so different and and laid back. And I was always direct, focused, you know, so I've got one who's like that, but then I don't think he's going to choose soccer. He played for a while, but he really likes basketball. He likes football. So don't force your kids to have your same mentality or to have your same sport. Let the kids be who they are. Let them play lots of sports. And I I try not to um, carry that over in terms of my parenting. But I, I would say that for me, I wake up every day excited. I love what I do. In some ways, you know, preaching has has some similarities to the game in terms of like, it's important you prepare. And then now it's time and you're connecting with people. I work with the team. I love meeting needs in the community. I love, you know, serving people, meeting a wide range of people. Uh, I like the intellectual aspect. I like as well, just the, the spiritual and the depth and talking about the deep things in life, the counseling where people experience healing and restoration marriages that were headed towards divorce there's restoration and now they're united. So what I'm doing today has value because at the end of the day, soccer, you're talking about, you know, lifting a trophy or putting a ball in a net, but you know, now what I'm doing, we're talking about people's lives and, and yet soccer is not less than it's just different. And I enjoyed both fully. And I, I think I learned a lot from the teams I was on, the coaches I had, and that actually helped prepare me. And, and when sport is uh, done well, it's really more than sport. It's, it's how you learn about life. It's, it's the lessons, what you pick up. You know, our coach, Bobby Clark, always said, ah, it's the we things. It's the we things. And, and it's so true. It's how you do the little things well. It's how you do the things when no one's watching. It's doing it properly. And when you start doing all the we things, the big things fall into place. And it's like, that stuck with me, no matter what I do. He would say every day, ah, it's a great day. It's a great day, lads. And, and it would be freezing cold and raining, you know, but it was like, oh no, that's the mindset. It's a great day to be playing soccer today. And, and just that optimism, the teamwork, the appreciation for the different guys on the team and the roles and how we work together as one. And, you know, honestly, when I started doing uh, in the church, I felt like, man, our team was so focused on soccer and we had a goal. We were going after it. I was like, how come things are so kind of casual or not focused? The teamwork's lacking in the church. And we're talking about something that's ultimately even more significant, you know, or how come, you know, I had the drive in soccer. It's like, well, 
how come people don't get along well when they say they're all Christians when, you know, we had on our soccer team, a wide range of people, and uh, we had a lot of unity. So those were some of the questions making the jump from soccer into, you know, serving at a church. And uh, I just think church should be alive too. Sometimes, you know, I appreciate like there's Church of Scotland, Church of England. My experiences there though, were sometimes it was like great people but sometimes it felt, hmm, I don't know. I, well, I got to be careful what I say. But I just think church should be alive. Church should be vibrant. And just like a stadium, it's game day at Patadre, you know, in Aberdeen. It should be, our lives should just be at home, at church, shouldn't be compartmentalized. Like it should be something, there's no double life. It's just genuine, authentic, passionate, and we're doing it together. And there's a lot of joy in it. And that carrying over was, was big for me. So I was having flashbacks there to, to coaches saying, I was just the wee things, just the wee things. Yeah, it was getting me. And, and one thing you said, it's, it's hilarious to me, is what's oh, a great day? Because I say that almost every day, not every day, but almost <laughs> every day. Like I used to work in a call center mm. and I used to say, oh, it's a great day to be taking calls. And now yes. I'm an engineer yes. and we're doing cabling and all this kind of stuff and I'll say oh it's a great day to be cabling look at the sun's out and everything else um and yeah, yeah. I usually get things thrown at me at that point but <laughs> <laughs> works for me what we're going to do is we'll take a real short break and we'll be right back after this so by now you'll have seen our website atpsports.net you gotta admit it's pretty awesome it was brought to you by the team at data squared you can find them on the web at datasq2.co.uk they're dedicated to bringing the very best in website design with hosting and security. Their aim is to provide you with the very best package you need to help spread the word about your business. Data Squared will design and build a website for you. And they'll build it not just for desktop, but for all devices so you can be seen on the move. Data Squared will help you choose your domain, making sure it's relevant to you and your business. And they'll open up an online store for you. They have the tools so you can keep track of customers, their orders, stock, and much, much more. So why not expand your business online today? with data squared visit datasq2.co.uk welcome back so we have jesse still with us so we've been talking about his career going from scotland to zimbabwe to being sick and and pretty much on on your deathbed recovering coming back you said obviously it took 10 years to kind of fully recover Mm -hmm. from from that illness that that drug gave you what have you been doing since then Yeah, thank you. You know, I came from a family where spiritually things are kind of like Baskin Robbins. In America, Baskin Robbins is 31 flavors. Then you get in a little pink spoon and you sample a bunch of different ice cream. And uh, we have in my family, people are Catholic, people who are Jewish. We have a rabbi, we have atheists, agnostic, we have ex-Catholic. And we just have such a range in my family. So I never anticipated that I would either follow Jesus or that I'd end up being a pastor. And sometimes in life, some of the greatest blessings are not what you see coming. You know, we form a plan in life and we think maybe something's going to work. And then there's these mid-course readjustments. And, you know, I started in college after I decided to put my trust in Jesus. It was in a class. I read the Bible for the first time and I put my trust in Jesus and I just started to have a gift of speaking. And I never had that before. And I actually, I hated the microphone. I hated being up front. And that, that was part of it. It was just kind of the discovery process during the healing time. And 
when you've been to the brink of mental health and you've been to the brink of your physical death and you kind of figure out, okay, what's most important in life? And it goes deep. Coming out of that experience, I just wanted to help people. I just wanted to serve people. I just wanted to give hope to people. I just wanted people, if they've been in the valley for a long time, the darkest valleys, that they could come out of that. And so really, it's in, in America, being a pastor, you get to do a wide range of things and meet a wide range of needs and people. And I felt like there's a lot of flexibility there. And, and I just care for people. And, and that's really at the heart of it, loving people. So I have uh, served, I served as a college campus, college pastor, worked with a lot of athletes, some of the guys, you know, playing in the NFL. And that was a lot of fun to work on the college campus. Then in California, now in Seattle. And Seattle's a soccer city for those who don't know the Pacific Northwest. But uh, we have the Seattle Sounders here. And the Seattle Sounders, about forty to 50,000 at a game. And I know a lot of stadiums in, in the UK wouldn't hold that many. But this is an American football stadium. And soccer fans coming in. It's all the singing and it's a celebration. It's the dancing. It's a lot of tradition there. And I love being in a soccer city. Also the coach's son, Bobby Clark's son, Jamie Clark is the college coach here at University of Washington, the Huskies. They're ranked top five in the nation. So a great program there and just bringing our kids to that. And then I, I play in a men's league as well. And we pretend like it's important. You know, we, we still put on our uniform We play at this Memorial Stadium, which is just underneath the Space Needle, you know, and it holds thousands of people. But now we play and it's an empty stadium. In our minds, that stadium is so full. It's standing room only, you know, championship on the line. But there's no ESPN. There's no cameras. We're just a lot of guys that played in college or played professionally. And we we get to still keep playing and try and stay in shape. Our, our minds are moving much faster than our feet. I'll just say that, you know, you, you, you watch the competition, like the team you're playing against, you watch them play before you now, and it looks kind of slow, you know, and, and, and then you tell yourself, wait a minute, we play much faster, right? When we play, we're playing a lot faster. So we've definitely lost a step, but uh, we're having a great time. And I, I just love being involved, connected with with athletes, different podcasts, and uh, just one-on-one relationships. It's interesting, the backup goalkeeper of the Seattle Sounders right now is from my college, Dartmouth College, same height, same weight. And my, my joke is, you know, the Sounders could have saved a lot of money if they went with the older version. Maybe the goals against would have been a little higher, but they could have saved a lot of money on that move. So I still feel like, I feel like I've got 10 years of playing in me that is still in there, but I, I try to not overdo it. Uh, it's, it's not so good when a pastor gets a yellow card, you know, it's just something about that, just some dissonance there. But uh, I, I do like to play hard and I talk a lot and have fun and just enjoy the game. I think one of the, the players that I remember from the Sounders was Clint Dempsey, he played in England, played for yes. Fulham um for for a number of years and I was always a huge fan of Clint Dempsey and when he yes. obviously he was coming towards the end of his career and um, went to mm-hmm. Seattle and uh, yeah I, I actually followed Seattle th- through the, through those couple of years because of him and then I started to see the next kind of generation players like your DeAndre Edlins coming through who now plays in England and, and stuff like that so um Seattle, right. Seattle has become and has adopted soccer quite well mm-hmm. now we have discussed previously on this podcast that Seattle Seattle isn't just a soccer city. It once upon a time and still is 
a basketball yeah. city. Um, back in the 90s, I remember staying up till three, four in the morning watching Supersonics Jazz Conference Finals. That's right. And, and now the WNBA are in town and have been for a number of years. And the Seattle Storm just picked up their fourth championship this year as well. That's right. And, you know, it's the Sounders have done the same. Sounders have picked up a couple of championships. They're doing very well for themselves. And I think from where American soccer was pre-Beckham to post-Beckham is very different. And what's really strange is years and years ago, you mentioned him earlier watching Pele. Mm-hmm. Pele was like the, the biggest superstar of that time. Beckham was one of a number of superstars but he seems to have been the one superstar that has caught America's attention and been like, mm. oh, you know what? Soccer's actually not that bad. We'll start watching that. And that we'll start playing it. Our kids will start playing it. So Seattle's definitely a soccer city. I think it's been adopted very well into Seattle. And whenever I see a game, obviously before COVID, the stands were filled. Like there was yes. probably a few empty seats here and there, but you couldn't actually notice them on the TV because the fans were, were out in force and and that must be good for you and good for the community as well and I think in American cities sports teams kind of embody the city kind of thing in terms of the city's mentality so that must be good for you as well to to be able to then go out into the community um, as a pastor and talk about yes. the sounders and talk about what they're doing and talk about what people can do in their lives That's right. And we were able to partner with the Sounders. We had a faith and family night. So one of the players spoke and then I spoke. And uh, so there's some great overlap there. They have an organization that's run. It's top notch. And like you say, Clint Dempsey, he's from the area here in, in Federal Way. And so he's a local boy that, you know, came back. His career ended as he had some heart troubles as well, but he had a long career and great player. And of course, like you mentioned, Seattle's, you know, your sports across the board, WNBA, and we've got a lot MLS, two championships for Seattle. It's so important for young kids in America to see that picture of professional athletes and to see that picture of the soccer team and to to catch that. uh, Because it's one thing to watch it on television, but it's another when you go to the game, you know, with your friends or mom and dad, and you experience the stadium and you watch the players. I mean, for me growing up, I was watching, you know, Neville Southall or Bruce Grovelar, you know, and that's where I had to look to get the pictures. You know, Bruce was a wild man, but uh, Zimbabwe connection there. And and here now it's like Stephen Fry. They can watch the players play at University of Washington. Then they watch them. They continue and they play in the MLS and they get to see the game. And when you get to see it firsthand, it, it it's powerful. You know, the other thing I think that America really needs, because you can, you can, yes, we've had some success. You know, Tony Sana that I played with growing up, he played in that U.S. team that lost to Germany and made it to the final eight in the World Cup. But uh, we've had some success and some runs, but overall, we've got a long ways to go. And one thing that stood out to me, you know, in Scotland, in Zimbabwe, is that kids are playing all the time and they are playing in the streets and in the parks and they're playing in front of their house. And in, in Africa, they would wrap together plastic bags and they would put those together and make a ball just so they could play. They would be playing in barefoot, no shoes, rocks everywhere, but they were playing for the love of the game. And when kids 
play every day and it's everywhere. It's not just like you have three practices a week and that's when you play and then you don't play anymore. But when you can go to the games and watch the professionals, when you can play in the streets and with your friends, then you've got something going. And obviously you need great coaching and you need a good system. But Seattle is uh, strong in terms of youth soccer and, and just all the way up. And that that's a culture, you know, and, and like you say, then fans come, they there's momentum right now with the MLS. It's really growing and it feels like it's going to stick and it, it keeps growing. Plus America is getting more diverse and people you know, from other cultures that, uh, you know, there's more and more uh, Hispanic community uh, here in America. And that adds to the passion in soccer too. So I think the right now, the potential momentum is very strong in the U S and, you know, they offer, uh, I was going to say for fans, the food at the games is even better than Scottish pies. I, I just, you know, if, if I. You can't be a Kelly pie. Come on. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, I, I have just good memories. You know, we always were drinking the hot tea at halftime in, in the game. So we do that because it's so cold. Like you say, Aberdeen, so cold. And then the Scottish pies after the game and like. I had the naive, I was the rookie mistake of just pounding the pies. And and then I realized afterwards, like, oh, that heartburn. I got to put a limit on, on the pies. But uh, yeah, good, good, good memories. And, you know, one thing I appreciate about Scottish football and, and the soccer there is the fans know the game so well. And that's the difference. When you go to a match, you know, if if you go to, let's say, Celtic and Rangers, I mean, every small play the fans pick up on it and they clap for it and they appreciate it. And, and I think as America grows in its knowledge and appreciation for the game, one thing that I pick up on is that there's more awareness of some of the nuances of the game. And then when you hear that, you're like, okay, we're making progress because the average fan is understanding. See in America, a lot of times, sadly, it's all about the goal or the score. Well, soccer is not going to provide as many uh, goals as other games that we have here, other sports. And then in America, a lot of times it's about the collision, you know, and the contact and well, soccer has some contact, but you know, you, you, um, you're not going to see it in the same category as American football. So if it's got no scoring, it doesn't have the physicality and, you know, it's not a cage match. Okay. Wh- what's the appeal? And and that's where the fans need to learn the game and, and they are, they're learning the game, understanding the game, playing the game. I think it's the most popular youth sport in America now. So the potential is great. It, it's outstanding, but it's a different sport and it's a sport I, I love. So the U S women um, have won multiple world cups. The U S men have I think, been to the last 16 and maybe even the last eight in recent times. How long is it until we see the men finally win one? I would like to say it's going to happen while I'm still on the earth. You know, if you asked me in college, I would have said, oh, yeah, 20 years, we got this, you know, and and now I'm like, ooh, we need, I I think it, it always starts with leadership, right? So whoever's leading, whatever country, whatever national team, you start with leadership there, and then it goes to coaching, and that's got to be strong. I would say that we're seeing talent. We're seeing talent. We're seeing more young U.S. players playing overseas right now, and there's great potential there. I think one reason, you know, the American women have done so well is that now it's not equal to the men. Sadly, there's still, you know, a gap in a lot of areas, but they're 
people value women's sports and women's soccer in America more than some other nations. And I think it's encouraging to see the other nations starting to catch up. But what you value, that's what you're going to, you know, pour your time and energy and money into. And I think it's been great to see America strong in the women's game. And now so many other countries are starting to improve as well as getting very competitive. But for, for the Americans, one challenge we'll always have is that there are, you know, four or five just sports that are big in America. And when you think about soccer, it had to climb up, you know, from maybe number six or to number five, to number four, like it, it's had to climb up where football is going to be number one, you know, NBA number two, and trying to make progress that, that it's the best athletes often move to other sports in America. And that's a challenge when you're trying to compete with teams where it's the number one sport in that country and the best athletes go to that sport and people know that sport and has a tradition that's strong too. So there's a lot of catching up, but I, I would say um, 20 years, 20 years is, is the reasonable goal. Years. <laughs> that, well, let's go 20 years, <laughs> 20 years from today, write it down. Where's the, uh, yeah. 20 years. Let's go 20 years. We'll probably say the same in 20 years. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right then. Well, before we let you go, yeah. this is your first time on the podcast. We always ask for your power rankings of your top five sports films of all time. Five down to your top number one. Okay. So we'll, we'll see what you've got. What is yeah. your number five? Very good. And I, um, Let's see. It's tough to put them in order. Let me, I'll just start with, uh, let's go with American football first and we'll go number five. Remember the Titans. And that's, yeah, it's a classic because I, one, you know, it's interesting. I think the, the movies that you're drawn to resonate deeply and you share some passion that you're seeing, you know, in the movie. So for me, remember the Titans, a passion in my life has been seeing people from different cultures come together in unity and black and white in America has been tense for a long time. We adopted a boy who's black, you know, in, in our family. And, uh, and I love it when people of different nations and cultures come together united and figure out how to do it together. So that movie moves me, even though you kind of know where it's going, Denzel Washington's great. It's still, it, that one catches me. It's like, no, I'm not crying. It's just my, my allergies, you know? So, right, right. Clearly, you know, so uh, let's go number five. Let's say number four, how about a classic? How about Chariots of Fire? Chariots of Fire. And you got to turn the clock back there. But I'm going to go Eric Little. And sometimes in movie, there's a line that sticks with you. And when he says, I was made for a purpose, and he's explaining to Jenny, God made me for a purpose. He made me to run, and he made me fast. And I can feel his pleasure when I run. And I I think it it speaks to that uh, for me, sometimes faith is compartmentalized into one hour or you have to be a missionary. It's like, no, you can walk with God as a soccer player, you know? And then also I just, I like to run and I feel that pleasure when I'm just going for it from God. So let, chariots of fire, we'll, we'll put that in. And then let's see, number three, let's go with Miracle. Miracle is a hockey movie. And 
I mentioned earlier, I grew up in the University of Minnesota campus going to the hockey games. Herb Brooks was the coach and Miracle on Ice. This was the team of American college players in hockey who knocked off the professionals from the Soviet Union. And it's considered the Miracle on Ice. And this goes back to the 1980s. But this was a movie about that based on a true story. And I watched those teams. I watched Herb Brooks. I watched the work ethic and uh, what I saw in those teams, I experienced in those memories of going to those games and then seeing them win that was phenomenal. So it's a Disney movie. Uh, I, I still, I, the real story is, is what gets it's, me there. It's such a good film. I, mm. I only watched it for the first time a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. I kind of put it off and put it off and put it off. I'd seen it on like Netflix or something for a while. Yes. But I was like, I started watching it one night and I was like, I got into it. And then... The, the bit that gets me is where he does the who do you play for yes and and that's that's like the, one of the iconic scenes and my favorite scene yes after they, I think they got beat off Norway or something like that mm-hmm. but yeah that that's definitely one of my my favorite scenes and that film's come up quite a number of times actually has it yeah. okay so that, that's very good a, a favorite and you're number yep, two yep. Number two, let's go with an American classic, Hoosiers. And that's basketball, but I said basketball is my passion growing up. And it's small town Indiana basketball. I always like the underdog stories. And then there's a father-son element in there. And for me, that was a big deal with my relationship. I have a dad, stepdad, and just, you know, my dad, when my parents got divorced, was gone. But then I forgave my dad and we we reconciled. There's healing in our relationship. And just to be close with both my dad and my stepdad, I'm so grateful for those relationships. So yeah, you combine small town, taking on the big boys and basketball and the father son. So I'll go Hoosiers number two. And number one, I'm going to go with probably the first movie that really captured my mind and heart. And it's the original Rocky, the original Rocky. And it's it's an underdog story. But I, I just feel like I can relate in a lot of ways to um, just this no-name guy who's just who is this guy to just feeling like now I've never taken raw eggs and tried to drink those. And I uh, as the, no, I, I don't think there's a lot of nutritional value there. And uh, in the Rockies, as they, they, a few of them got pretty corny, I would say as they progressed and there was a lot of them, but uh, there was just something about, he was all heart. He was going to go the distance and the odds were against him but he's not going to give up. And this is his one shot and he's going to go for it. And just kind of that, I don't know. I'm not always, I'm more authentic than I am like strategic and I'm not always planned. And like, he's just in there punching the meat and it's like, I don't know. That's all I know, you know? And yeah. it's like, okay, that that's what I'm going to do. So there's five. You, you could debate. We could switch around the order. What, what's what's the most popular uh, couple usually? What, what, so a Will league, Ferrell? A League of Their Own comes up quite a yes. lot. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. Talladega Nights comes up now and again. <laughs> sure. And Miracle. Miracle, cause, and remember the Chinese. Okay. So, yeah, you have a couple yeah. of favorites that come up. We're probably going to put out a poll thing on our website with everyone's films that they've chosen. But, yeah. no, thank you so much for joining us on Across the Pond Sports Podcast. It's been great having you, hearing about your career, hearing about the difficulties that you, you kind of fought through and, and where mm. you are today. Yeah. You're standing man, standing up and you know still involved in soccer as well which is great great to hear absolutely as well. that's right so thank you so if much people want to i enjoyed it so much i'll say if people want to connect my website's jessebradley.org and i'd love to connect any soccer stories any questions anything you want to talk about love to connect
Awesome. And you're on Instagram as well. So, and we'll pop your links on our description of the podcast. So if you want to click on the links on there as well, you can click on them and get in touch with Jesse. You've been listening to Across the Pond Sports Podcast, part of Across the Pond Sports Network. Keep checking back for more episodes. Sports Social Podcast Network.